me today. My name is Steve. I'm the executive pastor at Genesis. And I got to tell you, I love World Vision. I love Team World Vision. I, I had the opportunity to see their work firsthand uh, in 2018 in South Africa and Ethiopia, and they are doing amazing things. And, and right now, I mean, so many of us are at a loss for what we can do and how we can help to make the world a better place. And when I think about the recent themes uh, this year of things like good health and hygiene and racial equality, well, there aren't too many organizations that I can think of that are doing a better job at that than World Vision. So if you have any inkling of wanting to make a difference, uh, of maybe thinking about uh, running or walking a marathon or half marathon in November, uh, I, I just want to encourage you to text Genesis to 44888 and at least sign up for the call. Like Amy Claire said, it doesn't make sure, it doesn't uh, guarantee your spot on the team, it doesn't uh, commit you to that, but it gives you a chance to hear a little bit more about World Vision and what they're doing and maybe how you can help. Hey, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and get them out, open them to Mark chapter 1. And we're starting a brand new series today called Knowing Jesus. And this is a series that's going to take us 12 weeks or most of the summer. Why are we taking so long? Like, why would we do that? Why would we take so long to study the life of Jesus? Well, I believe one of the greatest things you can pursue in life is to know Jesus better. Philippians 3.8, the Apostle Paul said that everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so over the next 12 weeks, uh, we're going to look at 12 key events, 12 stories from the life of Jesus, because we believe that what's in this book is true. We, we believe God's word is true, and his word speaks of a Savior who came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. And what, We're going to look at what makes Jesus so unique, so special, and why does this piece of writing that maybe probably shouldn't even exist anymore, why is it still 2,000 years after the last words were written? It's still here. Why are we still talking about this? Why are we still talking about Jesus more than 2,000 years after his death? You know, the Bible tells us that he was fully God, yet he was fully human. That, that even though he was fully God, that he took on flesh and he came to earth as a baby, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and men. He became a man, and he went to the cross, and he died for us. He gave his life for you and me and along the way he showed us how to live he he showed us what it looks like to have a relationship with god there is so much to learn from jesus i'm telling you his life is a deep well and, and in these scriptures we have this very well preserved record of like what he did in his life how he lived his life uh, he is our model as a church for life and ministry and he should be your model for your life as well and so spending extended time together studying his life we're going to trace his steps of Jesus beginning with his baptism today all the way through his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven but in addition to talking about these things on Sunday I, I want to encourage you uh, we'd like everybody to be in our church to be digging deeper in this either in your own or in a connection group and so we've created a 12-week study uh, called uh, called knowing Jesus it's available on the Genesis Church app if you have that or it's available on our website at genesischurch.me. You can find that there. Uh, and and some, here are some goals for this series as we uh, think about the next 12 weeks. We want to get to know him better. We, we want to learn more about Jesus' life and how he lived we, because we want to become more like him. I, I got to tell you that with all the things happening in the world today, if all of us were just a little bit more like Jesus, this world would be a lot better place. And I know that that starts with me. 
And finally, we want to be better prepared to tell the greatest story ever told. And so as we get going this morning, I want to ask you, what has been the hardest thing for you during this time of quarantine and social distancing? If there's one thing that's been particularly hard for you, why don't you write it in the comments right now? You guys can share that online. What have you missed the most? I, I know for many of you, you've missed kind of those rites of passage, th those milestone moments. You know, a real rite of passage we associate with coming of a certain age. Maybe it was a prom for you. Uh, maybe it was a graduation or a wedding. For some of you, it was the birth of a grandchild or, or even a funeral for a loved one. If you've missed something like that, it almost feels like you've missed a defining moment in your life. You know, last month I got the chance to be a part of a wedding that had been planned for many months. And while it was originally planned as a huge event with 150 people and a large dinner in a big banquet hall and an elegant celebration, it instead became an intimate gathering of just a few family and a couple of friends. And while much of the splendor and the pageantry was lost in that moment, uh, I got to tell you the what happened instead was really a beautiful thing. That defining moment still got to happen. And today we're going to look at the defining moment in the life of Jesus, his baptism. Uh, Jesus, at the age of 30, was baptized. We're going to talk about the importance of obedience in his life. And now before you check out and say, okay, Steve, I get it. Jesus was obedient. I'm not. I understand what you're going to talk about. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Why was obedience so important in the life of Jesus? I mean, in the last few years of his life, the last three and a half or three and three quarters years of ministry, we see this man who is singularly focused on bringing glory to God, his father, and carrying out his mission. And so what is it about Jesus that we can learn from that? What is it that made him so obedient? Well, we're going to answer that. But before we get to that, let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus was the most obedient person who ever walked the face of the earth. He knew who he was, and he knew what he came to earth to do. He, he walked faithfully with the Lord all the days of his life, and that's what we mean by obedience. Jesus was obedient in all things. He, he never sinned. He was obedient as a child, as a teen, as an adult. And why is that important? Well, because we have kids and adults who are watching us uh, today or watching with us. He was obedient in baptism. He was obedient in his willingness to step into the mission that God had prepared for him. And if you are a Christian, you are called to a life of obedience. You, you are called to walk faithfully with the Lord, modeling your life after Jesus day after day after day. But that kind of obedience is only possible as we better understand who we are and what we're on earth to do, the things that Jesus understood. And, and so you probably know uh, even if you don't read your Bible much, even if you don't know much about Jesus, you probably know that he was born where? Bethlehem. You, you got that right. I hope you got that right. I couldn't hear you, but I'm assuming that you got that right. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But honestly, we don't know a whole lot about his birth family. We don't know much about Mary. We know even less about Joseph. We know that Mary and his family remained in Bethlehem for a little while after his birth, maybe a couple of years even, but they, and they were eventually visited uh, by the Magi. That didn't happen in the manger while Jesus, the week that Jesus was born. That happened later. Around the age of two, we know that King Herod ordered the massacre of all boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. And because of this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and warned him, told him to escape, and so they escaped to Egypt. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus moved to Egypt, and we can kind of surmise 
uh, we can guess that they were in Egypt for a year or two. And then Jesus, uh, Joseph eventually had another dream uh, where there's another angel that tells him about the death of Herod. And so he decides it's safe to move back into Israel. But on the way back to Bethlehem, they learn that Herod's son had become the ruler in the southern part of Israel where Bethlehem is. So they instead moved their family to Nazareth up in the north, Nazareth up in the north. Now, we aren't given much in the New Testament about Jesus's childhood, although we can gather some things by reading the Old Testament passages about him. We do know that he grew up in Nazareth. Uh, the author Luke records that Jesus grew and became strong and that uh, Jesus was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. We know that like every Jewish boy, he would have studied the scriptures or the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament that we have today. We know he would have learned the family trade as a carpenter, or more likely as a stonemason uh, under Joseph. Coming from a devout Jewish family, he would have returned to Jerusalem every year for a pilgrimage for the major Jew Jewish festivals. Uh, Luke said they returned for Passover every year. We know of one significant event from his life as a young boy. We know when he was 12 years old, his family did return to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when they started the return trip home, they'd always traveled as a big group, and they realized that Jesus was missing. And so they looked around the traveling party, couldn't find him anywhere, and they headed back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after a couple of days, they found him. If you've ever left your child at a gas station or a restaurant, if you didn't take a couple of days, you're, you're at least better than Jesus' parents and Jesus' family were. You know, they, they, they looked for him for a couple of days, and when they found him, he was sitting in the temple. And the scriptures record that he was uh, sitting with the teachers and asking great questions and learning. And the people said they were amazed at his understanding. And when his parents finally got to him and questioned him, where have you been? He said, you know I had to be in my father's house. Now, other than that, we have not really much more information about the life of Jesus until the age of 30. And at 30 years old, we see him show up. But until then, we can only make assumptions about what happened because we know what happened the rest of his life. He would have continued in his study of the scriptures. He, he grew in his relationship with his father in heaven. Somewhere along the way in this journey, Jesus started putting the pieces together about who he was and his role in the world. And, and we don't know when, but at some point, it's likely that Joseph died. It looks like Jesus takes over as the provider for his family. And then around the age of 30, God the Father prompted Jesus to leave Nazareth and go down to the Jordan River in the south of Israel near Jericho. And that's where we meet Jesus' cousin, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a, a prophet, and he really only had one message. He, he went around preaching, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, for the kingdom of God is near. And so he's down there on the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people who recognize their own sin and their own need for God. And, and like Jesus, John the Baptist was set apart for a unique mission from God. And his mission was to prepare the way and to point people to the Messiah, the Savior that the Old Testament talks about uh, who was to come. And so in our text, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, if you've got your Bible open there. Uh, Mark 1, 9 says this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now we know from other tellings of this story that Jesus was about 30. That's how we know that when he came to be baptized. Uh, Matthew records that Jesus said he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus placed quite an importance on baptism. There was some, some significance there. There was some weight to baptism. 
And you know, we still believe that. Here at Genesis, we still do baptisms as a way of making, marking an important milestone or a defining moment in people's faith journeys. So why do we do that? Why do we still baptize people? Well, there's three reasons we do baptism. One is to follow the example of Jesus. You know, baptism uh, of Jesus is detailed in three of the four Gospels. It's mentioned that he was baptized in all four Gospels. So clearly an important milestone in Jesus' life. And by fulfilling all righteousness, he was baptized. So he's setting the example for us. Second is to follow the command of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave his followers, gave his disciples a command to baptize. And, and finally, the third reason is that we identify with Jesus. You know, baptism is a rite of passage, and it happens after you make that decision to follow Jesus. You repent and turn to Christ, and your sins are forgiven. In that moment, you're ready to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you're ready to follow him, and then you're baptized. Now, I know that some church traditions say that baptism is a necessary component of salvation. We, we don't believe Scripture teaches that, but for us, much like a wedding ceremony, Baptism is an outward celebration of what's already happened on the inside. When we're baptized, we are buried with our sin and then raised to new life in Christ. And your baptism is a significant moment for you, for sure. But it's also a public statement to other people who are gathered that you have trusted Christ and that you're ready to follow him and step into your part of advancing God's mission in this world. And so because of that, we're hosting a baptism service next week here at Genesis Church, June the 14th. And uh, we know that many of you have asked. We know that we've got people out there right now that are joining us that are ready to be baptized because at some point along the way, you've made that decision to follow the command, follow the example of Jesus and the command of Jesus and to be baptized to identify with him. And so next Sunday, we'll be hosting that baptism uh, during this service. If you want to be baptized, you'll be able to bring a limited number of people with you here to observe that service and you can find all the details or sign up on the what's happening page at genesischurch.me or on the genesis church app under events and i'm going to ask you to please do that by tomorrow because the next step that's going to happen is one of our staff or one of our pastors is going to reach out to you and uh, help walk you through the process of baptism and some questions that we can uh, that you can answer for us to help us tell your story better but why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? You know, we talk about baptism as a symbol of repentance from sin. If Jesus had no sin, why would he be baptized? Well, with his baptism, Jesus fulfilled his relationship with God by obeying him, even when it didn't make sense. It was a practice of obedience. Uh, Jesus saw his baptism as a way of advancing God's mission on earth. Watch this. Watch what happens during his baptism in verse 10. Mark 1.10 says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now heaven is torn open, which is supposed to get the reader's attention. Hopefully that gets your attention. Hopefully you think about the Avengers movie, right, where this portal is opened up in the sky. Or, or maybe Big Hero 6, if you're from that generation instead. Wh whatever you think about, this is Mark's way of saying that something big is taking place. Right? Something significant has happened. Heaven is being torn open because of Jesus' baptism. Now, did other people see it? Well, we don't know that for sure. What we do know 
is that the phenomenon, phenomenon of the heavens being torn open is captured in all four accounts of Jesus' life, all four Gospels. It is kind of a big deal. So if, if you think about that, what else is in all four Gospels? Well, there's the feeding of the 5,000, there's the crucifixion, and the resurrection. That, those are pretty much the only other three things that are captured in all four Gospels. So this, as you can tell, is a defining moment in the life of Jesus. And so what happens next? The heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. The Apostle John records that John the Baptist saw that. He, he saw that happen. And so maybe others did too. But for Jesus, this is his public anointing as God's Messiah, as Savior of the world. And for Jesus, it was a reminder that he would never be alone, that, that his Father would be with him wherever he would go. His Heavenly Father's presence would go with him. It was also a reminder that Jesus was from God and that he was God in the flesh and that it was God's way of showing that he was at work in the world through his son, Jesus, ready to make things right. And if that wasn't significant enough, look at what happens next. Verse 11 says this, And a voice from heaven came. It's not enough that he tears open the heavens. He's going to speak down to his son, Jesus. A voice from heaven came and said, You are my son, whom I love, and with you, I am well pleased. Imagine what these words must have meant for Jesus and, and to other people who may have heard them. If you've ever been blessed by someone, if you've been blessed by a parent, you know what this feels like. This was clearly a defining moment, a milestone moment in Jesus' life. Man, I'll never forget the day that my dad blessed me. I was in my 20s, and I had worked really hard in school to get good grades, and I'd had some issues in college where I dropped out of one, I changed majors, I dropped out of another college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and finally I'd gotten a job and gotten married and kind of gotten settled down, and I remember my dad walked up to me one day and said, son, I just want you to know that I'm proud of you. I had very high expectations for you, and you fulfilled every one of those. I don't expect anything else from you. I love you, and I'm proud of you. And i got to tell you, in my life, that was a defining moment. I remember where I was sitting, and I remember that day when he walked in and told me that. And it was so huge. And so, parents, if you don't bless your children on a regular basis, you need to start. You know, give them those encouraging, those positive words that build them up. Make sure you bless them, not just in your actions, that's important, but with your words as well. Do it early and do it often. It's a defining moment in their lives. So, so how does God the Father bless Jesus? He says, you are my son. I love you. It's God's way of saying, I I'm your father. So let, let's not underestimate what those words meant to Jesus. He said, with you, I am pleased. In other words, I, I delight in you. And maybe you're in a position in your life right now where you don't really feel that delight. Guys, can I just be honest with you? It, it's been a hard three months. This last three months has been different than any of us have ever experienced, and we've seen uh, different things in our homes. We've seen different things in our workplaces. We've seen different things in our schools than we've ever experienced before, and sometimes our mind and our emotions don't know how to deal with them. And we can take that weirdness that's happening in our life, and we can transpose it and put it on God and say, God, you're making this happen. You're, you're doing this to me. What would it mean to you today to hear your heavenly father look at you and say, I am proud of you. With you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine hearing those words from your heavenly father? 
I mean, even if your earthly father or your earthly mother never had a blessing for you, imagine those words right now coming from your heavenly father. He loves you. He's pleased with you. You are my son. You are my daughter who I love. With you, I am well pleased. Imagine what that meant for Jesus. Verse 12 goes on. At once, the Spirit, that's capital F Spirit, that's God's Holy Spirit, sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, I I know Paul's going to talk about this more last week, or next week. This will be a significant event as Jesus will leave this defining moment where he's blessed and head out into the wilderness for maybe the most difficult thing that he's ever encountered in his life so far. He's going to be tempted by Satan. He's going to be tested. He's going to be tried. It's going to be difficult. He's going to need to draw on his father's words. He's going to need to remember what his father just told him. Uh, By the way, you know that when you're in a difficult time, you could remember God's words in those moments, right? One of the reasons that we memorize scripture, that we hide God's word in our heart is so that we can remember it when times are tough. It's not hard to remember God's word when times are easy. It is hard to remember it when times are tough. Jesus is going to have to do that over and over again. Uh, In fact, the wilderness and where Jesus is baptized, pretty close to one another, right next to each other. And in fact, in Luke 5, 16, Luke reminds us that Jesus often retreated to lonely places to pray. Uh, that, that word for lonely places is the word eremos, which means desert or wilderness. And he's going to recall his baptism as he goes to those lonely places to pray. He's going to remember what God told him in that moment. He's going to have to trust God for strength as, as he's obedient in all things. Because even for Jesus, I've got to believe that total obedience wasn't easy. And Jesus is going to need those words for the rest of his life here on earth. Now, I said up top, I wanted to answer this question. Why was Jesus always obedient? How was he able to always be obedient? Well, there, there are two things. Number one is this. He knew who he was. He understood his identity. God told him in that moment, you are my son whom I love. You are loved, and with you I am well pleased. I'm proud of you. Identity is so important. Guys, identity is the most important thing about you. It is key. It is critical to remembering who you are. Identity is a little bit like the top button on your shirt. Don't think I'm getting all the way undressed because I'm not, but I just wanted to show you this. Identity is like the top button on your shirt. In the morning, if you don't get the top button in the right place, the rest of your shirt's going to be off, and you're going to walk around the whole day wondering, what is happening to me? Right? you got to get that right. When you get the top button right, your identity, I couldn't get that off or not, you get that top button right in your identity, then the rest of your shirt is going to look great. When you get your identity right, then the rest of your life is going to be fine. And some of us are so caught up that our identity is in a particular political party or a particular worldview or a place or a job, a career, and that's where we find our identity. And i got to tell you, if that's you, you're going to be let down. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to feel off kilter because those things are not consistent. They're not steady. They're not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that you are a child of God and he loves you and he is proud of you. And when that's your identity, then your top button is right. The rest of your shirt's going to be right. The rest of your life's going to be right. Jesus understood who he was. He knew his identity. The second thing was he understood what he was sent here to do. He understood his mission. 
his mission was to give his life, to bring God's kingdom to earth, to initiate a movement of disciple-making that continues even today, 2,000 years later. And in and, and the same way, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were called to imitate Jesus in everything that we do. All of us who have made that commitment to follow Jesus are supposed to be imitators of Christ. In fact, the very word Christian, did you know that means little Christs? That's what Christian means, little Christs. So if we're going to be a little Christ, we have to understand our identity and understand our mission. And we follow Jesus' example at that. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And if we're going to live like Jesus did, then like him, we have to understand what God says about who we are. We have to understand our identity. And we have to understand what we're here for, our mission, right? In the last few minutes here, let's just look at a couple of verses about these two things. At first, let's look at verses about our identity. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's some pretty cool words that God has to say about us, right? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Ephesians 2 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Now, there's two things there. First of all, you used to be a stranger to God, and now you're not. If you are in Christ, you used to be an enemy of God, and God has brought you into his fellowship. God has saved you. He has rescued you. If you've made Jesus the center of your life, that is you. That's the first thing about that. The second thing is this. You're no longer foreigners or strangers. We are citizens. We are all citizens. Everybody who's a part of God's kingdom is the same. We're all equal in God's kingdom. It says this that you are God's, we are God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Guys, the church, even when we're not together physically, we're together spiritually. We are one building. We are one dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's our identity. That's who we are. Now, what about our mission? Matthew 28, 19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then finally, the one passage that ties the two together, our identity and our mission, and we think this is said best in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. This is where, in fact, Genesis Church gets our mission, helping people find their way back to God. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. Next week, we're going to celebrate some people who have made that decision to become a new creation. Uh, that Jesus has brought them into his kingdom, out of darkness, into his wonderful light, and we're going to celebrate that together, and we're going to celebrate that the old is gone, and the new is here. He says this, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now notice this passage is all about what God did. It's not that we found God. We're not better than other people because we're believers and they're not. We're not better than other people because we found God and they didn't. It says God was reconciling us to him. He was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is our mission. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. You know, as we close today, I just wanted to give you a few minutes, take a couple of minutes and acknowledge that for all of us, no matter where we are, God has a next step for us in our faith. And that next step might, might be a defining moment in our life. And for some of us, we know what that next step is because God's been calling us to it for a long, long time, and we've just not taken the time to listen or not taken the time to be obedient. But for many of us, we don't really know what that next step is. Like, where do I go from here? And, and one of the reasons is that we don't ever create the space for God to talk to us. And so I'm going to do that right, right now. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you a minute before we sing this last song just to ask God, God, what is that next step? of obedience for me. And then let's just listen. Like, What does he have to say to you? What is he wanting you to do? What's holding you back? I'm going to pray, and then let's, let's just dwell on that for a moment, okay? Let's pray. Father God, speak to us now. Speak to us now, Lord. Tell us who we are. Show us our identity. Tell us our mission. And Lord, I just pray for every person that's joining us right now, and for me and for all of us in this room, would you show us clearly, would you reveal yourself to us and reveal our next step that you would have us take in Christ Jesus?